Well, this morning, if you've got a Bible, you'll want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And if you're a guest with us this morning, we're especially glad that you're here. And if I haven't yet had a chance to meet you, I'd love to do that after the service. My name is Michael, and I'm the pastor here at Trinity Grace. And this morning, we're going to be beginning a new sermon series on what might be the most popular passage in all of the Gospels. The Gospels, which are the books at the beginning of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And over the coming months, we're going to be looking at a passage, three chapters specifically from the Gospel of Matthew, known as the Sermon on the Mountain. And this series is going to take us through the end of the summer together. And before we jump in, it's important to understand something of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. You might remember that Jesus began his public ministry when he was approximately 30 years of age. In the first few chapters of the book of Matthew, Matthew paints a picture for us of who Jesus is. Matthew tells us about his miraculous birth. And then Matthew begins telling us how Jesus began traveling throughout Galilee, healing diseases, casting out demons, calling disciples to himself. And word slowly but surely begins to spread about Jesus. And people are coming from everywhere in order to follow him. They're coming from north and south. They're coming from Jewish towns and Roman towns. They're coming from inside and outside of Israel. And it's who Jesus is. It's his healing ministry that's attracting these people to Jesus at this point. That's attracting these crowds. And it's against this backdrop of activity that Jesus takes his disciples. He stops what he's doing in a sense. And he begins teaching. He takes his disciples And they follow him up onto a mountain. And Jesus teaches his disciples and those in the crowd, those that are auditing in a sense. And he teaches them from chapter 5 through chapter 7 of the book of Matthew. And this is likely a sermon that Jesus preached many times during his earthly ministry. It's actually likely the sermon that Jesus wanted his disciples to teach others when he sent them out on the Great Commission to go and make disciples. This is what he wanted them to teach. In this sermon, Jesus is shaping and forming his followers. He's giving us a picture of what a Christian looks like, of what a Christ follower looks like. Now, most of the time, especially for those of us who've been in the church for a while, the Sermon on the Mount has kind of lost its punch. We've grown used to it in a lot of ways, and we don't consider how radical Jesus' teaching in these chapters actually is. A good homework assignment for all of us this week would be to go home and read the Sermon on the Mount, maybe even in one sitting, to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and to kind of read it with fresh eyes. And if you do that, hopefully you'll get a chance to see some of the peculiar teachings that Jesus is putting forth in these chapters. I mean, think about it for a minute. Jesus puts forth a radical view of sexuality, saying that if you look at a person with lust, you've committed adultery. Jesus puts forth a radical view of dealing with hostility, saying if somebody punches you on one side of your face, turn the other side of your face and let them punch you there. Jesus is putting forth a radical view of generosity, saying you shouldn't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, much less anybody else what you give. We, we look at this, we read about the ethics in the life that Jesus wants to teach his followers, and you read it and you ask, who lives like this? Who lives like this? 
I mean, this is not the way the world works. In many ways, it's contrary to everything that we experience in our culture. It's crazy. In fact, I recently heard a story of a school teacher who gave her students a copy of the Sermon on the Mount. But she didn't label it, and she took out the chapters and the verses from this passage. And most of her students had never read the Sermon on the Mount before, and she assigned them to write a paper on what they read, and she said that her whole class hated it. One student wrote this, The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman with lust is equal to adultery. To be angry with a person is equal to murder. These are the most extreme, stupid, inhumane statements I've ever heard. Honesty from a high school student, in a sense. Because to unvarnished eyes, the Sermon on the Mount is crazy. But Jesus is teaching his disciples what it looks like to follow him in the sermon. He's painting for us a picture of the good life. It's the beautiful life. It's a life characterized by wholeness and completeness. And it's strangely attractive. It's strangely attractive uh, to um, our culture's sensibilities. The thing that Jesus teaches in this sermon makes us distinctive in the world. It sets us apart. This sermon shows us what life in God's kingdom is intended to look like. This is how a person in right relationship with God should act. And some of these teachings are going to feel really strange because we're not used to living this way. Every fiber of our being is going to push against some of these teachings because we live in a culture where we're swimming upstream in a sense. A few years back, I was in East Tennessee on the side of a mountain and I had a hard hat on my head and a harness around my waist. And as I moved toward the edge of the cliff, I kind of tightened my grip on the rope and I was walking backwards over this cliff because I was about to rappel down the face of the side of a mountain down to the riverbed below, and I was scared to death. I don't even like being on a chair, much less a mountain, because I'm afraid of heights. But as I began to slowly make my way backwards over the edge, the park ranger who was anchoring me from the top looked at me in the eyes and he said, you've got to trust me, and you've got to lean back with all your weight. Lean back with all your weight. And it felt crazy at the time. I mean, everything inside of me wanted to reach forward and take hold of that mountain. But for those of you who've ever been repelling, you know that reaching forward actually puts slack in the rope. And it causes you to lose control, potentially just sliding back and forth all the way down the mountain, scraping yourself up like crazy. Because the proper way to repel is to lean back with all your weight, to allow the rope to not have any slack at all, to catch you, to push off the mountain with your feet. But like I said, every fiber of my being is telling me to reach to the mountain, to hang on to the mountain with your hands. Repelling is extremely counterintuitive. And in much the same way, our passage this morning is going to feel counterintuitive. As we read these words from Jesus in Matthew 5, everything inside of you is going to want to do it a different way. It doesn't feel right. It's not what we've grown up learning to do. It doesn't seem natural. But Jesus is coming and giving us a description of what the beautiful life looks like. A full, rich, abundant life. And as we read this passage this morning, I want to encourage you to lean back. Even though this teaching doesn't feel natural, it may be just the thing you need to hear this morning. So you follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, this is God's word. It's given to us because he loves us and cares for us and wants us to know him. So let me pray for us before we consider it together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you teach us, for the way that you show us what life in your kingdom looks like, for the way that you paint a picture for us of the good and beautiful life. Lord, we long to live this life, and we confess many times we come up short, and so we are thankful that you are one who has lived this life on our behalf, and we pray this morning that we would see that, that we would be encouraged, and that we would be set free by what we see in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as some of you know, Rachel and I uh, both grew up in Tennessee, and we moved here to San Antonio from Tennessee in many ways. And because we're from Tennessee, all of our extended family still lives back in that state. And so we try to make a trip back to Tennessee once or twice every year. Uh, And it's great to go back. It's great to be with family for a few weeks, to see grandparents enjoying their grandkids, to see old friends, uh, to eat at favorite restaurants that we have back in Tennessee. And one of the things that always happens when we go back home, especially after people haven't seen our kids for a while, is we hear people comment on how much they've grown and how much they look like Rachel, hopefully, or how much they look like me sometimes, um, and uh, how much they look like our family. And if you've ever been around a young family before, you know this game. You look at the kids and then you look at the parents and you can immediately see similarities. You can see certain physical traits that stand out between parents and kids. I mean, even in this room, you can look at some of the little ones among us and you immediately know whose parents they are, even if they're not next to their parents, because they just look like them. And the kids don't have to do anything to look like their parents. It's just who they are. And that's a helpful picture to have in mind as we think about the passage that we just read this morning. These words from Jesus are in many ways a description of character traits. This is what followers of Jesus look like. The Beatitudes are the family characteristics of God. And they act as a foundation for our entire study on the Sermon on the Mount. Because in these verses, Jesus is describing us what a whole person looks like. He's describing for us a person who flourishes in this world. He's describing what a rich and abundant life looks like. This is what a life of blessing looks like. It's what it means to have God's favor. This morning, I want to point out two primary characteristics and two results of each characteristic. And hopefully you'll see the consistent flow of these Beatitudes this morning. That's the hope. That's always the goal here on Sunday morning, is that you leave this place and you understand the Scriptures better for yourself. That you see the Bible and that you understand what God is saying. So, the first characteristic we see in the Beatitudes, um, the Beatitudes 1, 2, and 3, is that a whole person is a needy person. A whole person is a needy person. 
I wonder if somebody came up to you this morning and asked you what the blessed life is, how you'd respond. If someone asked you, how would you know if you had God's blessing in your life, what would you say? Well, our culture and most of us would describe the blessed life as one characterized by health or money or prestige or travel or ease or fun. But Jesus comes and he starts his sermon by saying that the blessed life, those who are blessed are characterized by poverty. God's favor rests on the poor and the whole world shakes their head. Can't believe what he's saying. I oftentimes drive down Days of Allah Road, and if you've ever been on Days of Allah and I 10, you're likely to run into homeless people there at that intersection. And a few days ago, I was at Days of Allah and I 10, and there was a woman walking up and down between the cars begging for money with a sign that read, Need food for my family. And I don't normally think about these things. Um, I normally just get on with my day. But for some reason, this woman stood out in my mind's eye because she looked pretty rough, beaten down, didn't make eye contact as she walked by the cars that day. And I drove past her and I was struck by her neediness. It was just kind of an existential moment that I had. And her complete dependence on others in order to make it in life. I mean, what, what would that be like? What led her to be in this position to be so poor that you're completely dependent. And we can see this poverty with our eyes. I mean, it's pretty stark there on Days of Allah and I-10. But in many ways, it's exactly the picture that Jesus is trying to paint for us in these first three Beatitudes. We can see her poverty because it's physical, but ours is just as worse when we look on the inside. Our spiritual poverty is just as bad as hers, her physical poverty. According to Jesus, we're not much different from this woman. Sure, we've got clothes, we've got food, we've got money. We're not needy with physical things, but we're desperately needy when it comes to spiritual things. Look at how Jesus starts out describing the whole life in verse 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, the impoverished, those who are completely dependent on another person to make it, the pathetic, the miserable in spirit. Jesus is using the strongest possible word for poverty in this verse. He couldn't have found a stronger word. It would be used to describe the welfare poor today, the underclass of our society. What is Jesus thinking? Uh, What kind of teaching is this? Poor is not a word that you and I normally associate with positive connotations. But here's Jesus saying that you're blessed. And another word for blessed would be fortunate. You're fortunate when you find yourself in a position of spiritual poverty. Jesus is saying that God's favor rests on these kind of people. You're blessed when you've reached rock bottom spiritually, when you feel like you've got nothing left, when you feel like you can't make it another day. That's not really a place in life that we would choose to be, but it's the place in life that God says, this is when God's favor can rest on you. So embrace it. Jesus tells us that it's a fortunate place because Jesus sides with those who fail and who feel their failures. He sides with those who realize that they can't live without God's help, those who are on spiritual welfare in a sense. Jesus places the world's value system on its head throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, but especially here in the Beatitudes, because Jesus is blessing the spiritually inadequate, 
This beatitude is incredibly hard for middle-class Americans, especially us in Northwest San Antonio. Because if you were to take a poll of your friends and neighbors about what characteristics they admire in other people, they would say strength and power and success and self-sufficiency and every fiber of our being fights against this beatitude. Poor in spirit would never make the list. Not in a hundred years. But Jesus is saying that a whole life begins with the admission that you're needy, that you're completely dependent. In many ways, every command we hear from Jesus from this point forward in the Sermon on the Mount is going to drive us back to this first beatitude. Because we're going to realize how needy we are over the coming weeks. But Jesus moves on from this first beatitude and he continues to paint a picture of what the whole life looks like. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Our spiritual poverty should lead us somewhere. It should lead us to mourn, to look at our own hearts, to look at the world around us, and to mourn over the sin that we see in our hearts and and all around. Another word for mourn is heartbroken. Blessed are the heartbroken. Fortunate are the heartbroken. The word carries a sense of weeping, to be those with tears in our eyes as we live in this world. And I wonder this morning what you're heartbroken over. Does injustice or immorality or suffering break your heart? Does the darkness that you find in your own life ever break your heart? Your lack of integrity, your apathy, your willingness to cut corners. Because these are the things that break the heart of God. And as his followers, we're called to mold our hearts after his. And and the whole life is one that comes and sees your life in this world and all of its reality and mourns over the brokenness it sees. We're, we're supposed to mourn over the effects of the fall. We see in the second beatitude that once again, Jesus comes and he puts himself on the side of outsiders, of those who aren't doing very well, of seeming failures. Jesus blesses those who mourn over sin and promises to bring comfort to their mourning. Remember in the book of Isaiah, how Jesus is described. He's described as one who's going to come and bind up the brokenhearted. He comes for those who mourn to bind up their mourning. The third beatitude takes us a step lower though. And hopefully you see this progression. We start high and we're working low. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Another phrase for meek could be little people. Blessed are the little people. Fortunate are the little people in the eyes of the world. Those who the world takes no account of, because they'll be the ones, what does it say? Who inherit the earth when God sets things right one day. A meek person is one who makes no claims before God, no claims before other people. He's an unaggressive person. She doesn't assert her rights. They can do this because they've got a true estimate of themselves, of who they are. They realize that there's nothing to defend. There's nothing to defend. In fact, a meek person is amazed that others can think as well of them as they do. That you could treat me as well as you do. It's not weakness. Jesus was never weak, but he was always meek. The bottom line we see from these first three Beatitudes is that a whole person is a needy person. Jesus comes and he blesses the dependent poor. He blesses the grief-stricken. He he blesses the unaggressive. Jesus gives these people everything. And these are the type of people who are in place to receive God's grace and his mercy. 
So we see that a whole person, according to Jesus, is a needy person. Now, I want you to take a quick look at where this neediness is meant to lead us, okay? And hopefully you're going to see the flow of this sermon. The fourth beatitude is all about satisfaction. Where does our neediness lead? Where are you going to find satisfaction for this neediness that you feel in your heart and in your life? Well, the first three beatitudes are meant to lead us to the fourth beatitude so that we can satisfy our deepest spiritual thirst. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus promises satisfaction if we look in the right place. Where do you tend to look for satisfaction? When you experience your neediness, when you experience the holes in your life, where do you go in order to have those holes complete? Where do you go to find satisfaction? I think more often than not, we're looking in the wrong places to satisfy our spiritual neediness. You and I tend to look horizontally when it comes to finding satisfaction. We look to satisfying the ache inside with people and things. Things that we see on the horizontal level. With a new toy or a gadget, with a new vacation, with more control, with new clothes, with numbing mechanisms like alcohol or food. And these can be really good things, but they were never meant to ultimately satisfy the hunger and the thirst that our hearts and souls experience in this world. Jesus reminds us that we'll never be satisfied as we look horizontally. Instead, we've got to look vertically. We've got to look to God and his righteousness because only God can ultimately satisfy our neediness. Our neediness is meant to lead us, to drive us to the Lord. Jesus names what we need. What's going to satisfy our hunger or thirst? He calls righteousness. And it's a theological word with lots of different meanings in the scriptures. But in this context, it means a yearning for God's rule in your life. A yearning for God's rule in your life. It's a thirst for his kingdom. A longing to know God personally. A desire to see God's standards extended in your own heart and throughout the world. That's where we're going to find satisfaction for our spiritual thirst. We find satisfaction from knowing and loving God. And this beatitude fills us with righteousness and it's a bridge. I want you to see this in the scriptures. It's a bridge between what we'll call the beatitudes of need that we just talked about and the beatitudes of service, which we'll talk about in a minute. Once we find satisfaction for our neediness, Jesus turns and he points us back out towards others to serve them. We see the second characteristic of a whole person found in Beatitudes 5, 6, and 7, where we see a whole person is a loving person. A whole person is a loving person. And I want to be brief here, but I do want to point out that part of us being filled is so that we can move out and empty ourselves on other people. We've been filled so that we can move out and pour that fulfillment out to our friends in our neighbors. And this is what the next three Beatitudes are all about moving out and loving others. These three Beatitudes, like I said, are often called the Beatitudes of service. Since we've been loved by God, since we've been satisfied by Him, we can move out and love others. God's love for us always comes first, and then we're called to love others in response. So, what does a whole person's love look like? Well, we see Jesus highlight three characteristics. A whole person's love is merciful. 
Because of the mercy that, that you've been shown by God, you're enabled to move out in mercy towards others. A whole person has compassion for people in need because we realize our neediness. A merciful person is one who takes on the troubles of others. You come to the aid of the needy. If you are one who knows your need and your heart broken, you've got compassion for the fall of others. Because hopefully you've experienced some falls yourself. And since you've been a recipient of God's mercy and grace, he intends for you to pass that on to other people. Being a merciful person is a consequence of God's love. It's not a requirement to earn it. You don't be merciful so that you can get God's love. You get God's mercy and love, and then you move out to be merciful and loving towards others. Next, we see that a whole person's love is pure in heart. A whole person is a single-minded person, a sincere person. In the Bible, the heart is the center of the human. The operating core of the emotions, the will, the intellect. A whole person is one who's been cleansed by God at the center. A person who's free from falsehood and relationship with God and man. A person who's got nothing to hide. A whole person lives a transparent life, the same in public as she does in private. A whole person continually acknowledges their sin and knows that they can't clean it themselves. They've got dirty hands. They'll just make themselves dirtier. They need somebody from outside themselves to come and purify their hearts. And that's what God promises to do. Lastly, we see that a whole person's love is peaceful. A whole person is a reconciler. One who actively pursues peace with God and other people. And since we've been shown this peace by God, we get to move out and to extend it to others. There's a theme, isn't there, in this sermon. And this often is going to involve pain. The pain of apologizing to a person. The pain of telling another person how they wronged you, potentially. And as you move out to make peace, you're demonstrating God's character. You're taking on the family characteristics. And that's why Jesus calls those who pursue peace sons and daughters. They're a part of God's family, mirroring him. Jesus tells us that a whole person not only receives from God, but a whole person also moves out and gives to others. A whole person is a loving person. Now we get to see the result of this love. As a whole person who loves others well, what should you expect? Well, what would you expect in return for pouring your life out and love to others? You'd probably expect others to return the favor, right? To be appreciative of your sacrifices, to think well of your care. But Jesus tells us to expect something different. He tells us that we can expect scorn and suffering in return for pouring ourselves out for others. Following Jesus and loving others comes at a price. Friends who won't understand you. Family who thinks you're judging them constantly. Co-workers who mock your beliefs. Maybe not in front of your face, but definitely behind your back. Bosses who threaten you when you refuse to make shortcuts or cut corners. Look, in this passage, Jesus is telling people to expect suffering if they're following him. A question we've got to ask this morning is, do I ever experience suffering for Christ's sake? Do I ever experience discomfort because I love others well? Do I ever experience ridicule for my beliefs and actions And Jesus is telling us when we do, we're in noble company when we're persecuted. And it's a sign that we're following Jesus in real and authentic ways. 
but we shouldn't actively seek this persecution out. Jesus is telling us that we don't need to actively seek it out. You don't have to be obnoxious. You don't have to be annoying. You just need to love people well and follow Jesus. And this is going to come our way simply because we're walking according to his standards. And in our context, it's not going to be physical persecution. Thankfully, other brothers and sisters across the world, they read this passage and they understand it in a different way because they do suffer physical persecution. But for us, it's going to be more relational or vocational or, um, or, or cultural persecution. And we should be wary if we're not experiencing at least some kind of scorn and suffering for our beliefs. So in this passage, just in conclusion, Jesus is painting a picture of what a whole person looks like. One who's dependent on God, one who serves others selflessly. And we're called to be this type of person as we live in God's kingdom. But it doesn't take long for us to realize how far short we fall in living out these family characteristics. We are not good sons. We are not good daughters. In fact, you could say that there's only one who exhibited these qualities perfectly in his life. Jesus, think about it for a minute with me, is the one who's the ultimate whole person. Because Jesus was one who gave up everything and became poor. Experienced poverty unlike any other. Left riches, shelved his rights, and took on poverty. Sacrificially and willingly. He was one who was well acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, who walked this world with tears in his eyes. He was one who mourned over the sin that he saw in other people's lives and in this world. He was one who refused to assert his rights, and he moves out in mercy and in purity and in peace towards us. Jesus is the one who experienced suffering and persecution like no other on the cross, and for what? For loving people, for serving people. That's all he ever did. And as we place our faith in Christ, what you and I find, we find ourselves united to this whole man. We're united to Christ as we place our faith in him. We are brought into the family and we can live into these family characteristics. They might not be true of you perfectly, but it's what Christ has died in order to win for us so that we could take on the family characteristics. And we won't do it perfectly this side of heaven, but if you're in Christ, this is you and you can live into your new identity. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies about who you are. This is who you are. And God is calling us to live into these characteristics. But it's important to understand that none of us is going to do anything that the Sermon on the Mount teaches naturally. It's only possible if you've had a radical encounter with God's grace. It's only possible as you rely on Jesus because you're going to fail again and again. And he's the only whole person that ever lived. Jesus was the whole man, and he comes for us in order to make us whole again. Think about it. Jesus was broken on the cross so that you might be made whole. On the cross, what did Jesus experience? He experienced God's curse so that we might receive God's blessing. So that we might receive Matthew chapter 5. And now as we live this life, we experience life and wholeness, and we can bring life to the world by following Jesus in these characteristics. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you for this demonstration of who we are, 
uh, for this list of characteristics that you have won for us. We pray, Lord, that as we seek to live out life in your kingdom, that you would empower us by your spirit and your grace to do just that. And that as we fail, that we would fling ourselves onto your forgiveness and on your grace in order to find restoration and renewal, in order to be put back out there so that we might live these characteristics that you've called us to live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.